true friendship is hard to find. There are myriad options of staying connected these days, but they don't guarantee true friendship. And I think true friendship is hard to find because too few people know what friendship is, how to be a true friend, and how to receive other people's friendship. Dr. William F. May from the Institute for Practical Ethics and Public Life differentiates between accepting love and transforming love, but argues that both are necessary for parenting. And I think the same applies to friendship. Here's what Dr. May says. Parenting entails a double passion and loyalty, both to the being and to the well-being of the child. Neither loyalty is complete alone. On the one hand, parents need to accept the child as he is. As Frost said, home is where when you go there, they have to take you in. Parenting requires accepting love. On the other hand, parents must also encourage the well-being of the child. They must promote the child's excellence. If they merely accept the child as she is, they neglect the important business of her full growth and flourishing. Parenting requires transforming love, end of quote. Isn't that true of friendship? We must accept our friends as they are, love them as they are, but additionally encourage them to grow beyond where they are for their greater well-being and God's glory. Friendship is like, I, I love you as you are but I desire you to improve for your greater good and God's glory. An imbalance of accepting love and transforming love weakens friendship. Dr. May added this, accepting love without transforming love slides into indulgence and finally neglect. Transforming love without accepting love badgers and finally rejects. End of quote. Friendship is not indulgence and neglect. Neither is friendship badgering and rejection. Friendship is a balance of accepting love and transforming love. Dr. Dan Doriani argues from Matthew 9 that Jesus brings the perfect balance. Doriani said, Jesus brings accepting love and transforming love into perfect partnership. Jesus came to Matthew and accepted him as he was. He loved his sinful friends as they were, yet Jesus wanted to transform them. Jesus called Matthew before he cleaned up his life. He called Matthew when he was still a tax collector. But after Jesus called him, Matthew gave up his old life. He changed. So it always is with Jesus. He loves sinners as we are, but he never leaves us where we are. That's an important thought. Jesus loves sinners as we are, but he never leaves us where we are. Jesus loves sinners so much, he does not stop with accepting them. He goes on to transform them. Because of the redemptive work of Christ for us, God accepts us, and his transformation of us into the image of Christ confirms that he accepts and loves us. Accepting love and transforming love are really just two sides of the one coin of love. Jesus is the true friend of sinners, but that can be misunderstood. Kevin DeYoung rightly said this, in what way was Jesus a friend of sinners? 
Did he have a grand strategy for reaching tax collectors? Did he indiscriminately hang out with drunks and prostitutes? Was he an easygoing live and let live kind of Messiah? What we see from the composite of these verses or passages is that sinners were drawn to Jesus, that Jesus gladly spent time with sinners who were open to his teaching, that Jesus forgave repentant sinners, and that Jesus embraced sinners who believed in him. And DeYoung continues, Jesus was a friend of sinners not because he winked at sin, ignored sin, or enjoyed lighthearted revelry with those engaged in immorality. Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel, sorry for their sins, and on their way to putting their faith in him. End of quote. Jesus is the friend of sinners, not because he unconditionally accepts them all without expecting any change in them, but because he gives them grace, which inevitably produces change in them. Following Matthew's theme of, of forgiveness, today builds on last week. And here's my main point. Jesus is the friend and physician of miserable sinners. He comes to them to accept them, heal them, transform them and give them a new life. So if you know the greatness of your sin and misery, if you are distressed with the burden of your guilt, there is great comfort for you today in this passage, and I hope to help you grasp it. Let's begin here. Number one, Jesus came to a miserable sinner named Matthew and called him, healed him, and gave him a new life. Verse 9 is a story of accepting and transforming love. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew first records the healing of the paralytic in order to demonstrate that Jesus does indeed have the authority to forgive sins. He is the son of man who possesses that special authority to forgive sins. And then Matthew follows it with the story of his own forgiveness and transformation. A tax booth was a place of corruption, not because of taxation, but because of overtaxation. Tax collectors often charged above and beyond the Roman tax in order to amass greater wealth for themselves. And so you can imagine why tax collectors were greatly hated. As a tax collector, Matthew was likely prosperous, but also presumably dishonest, crooked, and greedy. No doubt Matthew had skeletons in his closet. Matthew was also a Jew working for Rome. That was a problem. Fellow Jews saw this as working for the enemy, working for the oppressors. Why then was Jesus coming to Matthew, a miserable sinner? Why didn't Jesus go to the good and religious people? Well, think about it like this. There's, there's an inspiring television show called The Biggest Loser. You might have seen it. The show features overweight contestants working very hard to shed pounds to be the biggest loser. The show would be entirely different and much, much less inspiring if the contestants were lean and toned with exceptionally low body fat, racing to shed another 1% of their body fat. What makes The Biggest Loser a success is dramatic transformation. 
Jesus came to Matthew, the miserable sinner, called Matthew, the miserable sinner, healed Matthew, the miserable sinner, and gave Matthew, the miserable sinner, a new life, all to display his own exceptional and divine accepting and transforming love. Matthew's retelling of his own conversion further showcases the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. Later in verse 13, Jesus says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's what Matthew's dramatic call shows us. In scripture, there are two different kinds of calling. One is a universal call of the gospel, that external gospel invitation to all to come to Jesus for forgiveness and new life. The second is the effectual call or the internal call issued to God's elect alone, the call which actually brings sinners to Christ. This is the call that Paul describes in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The effectual call is not merely an invitation it is God's gracious and irresistible beckoning the sinner to Christ. And I believe that when Jesus called Matthew, it was an effectual call, an irresistible call, an authoritative and successful command which roused Matthew to follow Christ. Jesus gave the divine command, follow me. And Matthew rose from his tax booth and followed Jesus. Calvin said, Quote, in the great readiness and eagerness of Matthew to obey, we see the divine power of the word of Christ. Not that all in whose ears he utters his voice are equally affected in their hearts. But in this man, Christ intended to give a remarkable example that we might know that his calling was not from man. End of quote. The fact that this dishonest, crooked and greedy man left everything behind to follow Jesus displays the sovereign and accepting and transforming love of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus didn't tell this vile sinner at the tax booth, hey, clean up your life, you sick and twisted reprobate, and then maybe I can do something with you. Go to work. No. Jesus knew Matthew's sin, guilt, and misery. And he came to him anyway, called him anyway, healed him anyway, and gave him a new life anyway. Matthew gives himself as an illustration of a miserable sinner receiving the accepting and transforming love of Jesus. Luke records in his gospel, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, why did Matthew leave that out of his gospel account? Well, probably because Matthew was minimizing himself and maximizing Christ. Matthew didn't emphasize his great sacrifice for Christ, but rather the marvelous compassion and mercy and grace and love that Christ extended to him, a miserable sinner. Matthew is yet another example of how Jesus is the friend and physician of miserable sinners. How he comes to them, accepts them, heals them, transforms them, and gives them a new life. 
Okay, folks, so if you know the greatness of your sin and misery, if you are distressed at the burden of your guilt, then the authority of Jesus to forgive sins, the accepting and transforming love of Jesus will be very, very, very attractive and exciting for you. Indeed, a great comfort for your soul. Number two, Jesus is the friend of sinners. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is a fantastic verse. And when we go to Mark 2 and Luke 5, we get more details about this feast. Guess who threw this dinner party? Matthew did. Luke says, and Levi, that's Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. So this is how it went. Jesus came to Matthew, the miserable sinner. Jesus effectually called Matthew, the miserable sinner. Matthew, the miserable sinner, experienced the accepting and transforming grace of Jesus and responded in true faith by leaving behind his old life and following Jesus in his new life. Matthew wanted to honor his savior and master who had effectually called him, wanted to celebrate divine grace, the divine grace that he received to celebrate his new life. And so Matthew made a great feast to honor Christ, and he invited tax collectors and sinners who also needed Christ. Matthew invited his friends the disreputable people of society. One source notes, quote, conquered by divine love, Matthew introduced his friends to his new master, end of quote. Matthew wanted his miserable sinner friends to be around Jesus, the friend of sinners, because Jesus was hope. Notice Matthew once again uses the word behold. He uses it often. And he wants you to know the heart Jesus has for sinners, miserable sinners. Jesus came to save miserable sinners. So, of course, he spent time with miserable sinners. Luke adds that there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. That's a, that's a close, intimate friendly environment for Jesus to interact with a lot of sinners, a lot of sinners. And Mark adds, for there were many who followed him. Sinners were attracted to Jesus, not because he tolerated their sinful habits, not because he blended in, allowing them to feel quite comfortable in their current state, but because he offered them hope of a new life. So this is not the Jesus party, Jesus the party animal, sinking into revelry of sinners in order to fit in and be well-liked. That's not what we're seeing here. This is not Jesus treating sin lightly and accepting anyone and everyone as if uh, with no expectation of, of their repentance. This is Jesus, the friend of sinners, seeking and saving sinners, welcoming sinners to encounter his truth and grace. This is sinners coming to Jesus because his accepting and transforming love are attractive and hopeful and comforting. This passage means very, very little to self-righteous people. 
Very little. But if you know how great your sin and misery truly are, if you are at times distressed because of the weight of your guilt, then this passage means a lot to you. It's deep comfort for your soul. There is no way to grasp the depth of Christ's compassion and mercy and love in this passage without first grasping the depth of your sin and guilt and misery. It's just not going to happen. Saints, your sin is so horrific, so atrocious, so hateful and rebellious that you deserve eternal hell. Does that hit you? But brothers and sisters, Jesus, the friend and physician of miserable sinners like you and me, came to you in all your faults and failures, accepted you in all your faults and failures, took your faults and failures upon himself to heal you, reconcile you to God, restore the image of God in you so that you would live a new life of thankfulness and joyfulness and obedience to him. You would not know the friendship of Christ had he not come to you and befriended you. You were sitting at the miserable tax booth of sin, working hard for yourself to gratify your own flesh, and Jesus approached you. Jesus called you out of your sin and misery to do something entirely different with your life, to live to please him who bought you with his blood. The greatest news in all the world is that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Number three, self-righteousness blinds people to their own depravity and the identity of Jesus and his authority to heal, forgive, and transform. Self-righteousness is very dangerous, friends. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They just didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. They didn't want to comprehend who he was and what he was doing. Their self-esteem and their self-regard blinded them to their own sin and guilt and blinded them to the beauty and the compassion and the mercy and the love of Christ. Self-righteous people remain unmoved at the call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After all, they are blind to their sin and need. But desperate, miserable, guilty feeling, and trusting penitent sinners find the call of Christ a sweet invitation and welcome to divine grace and forgiveness. These self-righteous Pharisees took note that Jesus was eating and communing with the unwashed masses. They objected, missing his compassion entirely. They failed to acknowledge that Jesus makes the unclean clean. This part, brace yourself here. This part might get hard. Before we're too, too hard on the Pharisees, we must admit that sometimes we too are self-righteous. 
Those lousy drunks, child abusers, prostitutes, registered sex offenders, people on parole. Oh, how self-righteous we can become when we compare ourselves to them. And oh, how we can forget that we are them. We are them. Have we not understood James 2.10? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point has become guilty of it all. The problem with the Pharisees was that they differentiated themselves from the tax collectors and sinners. They assumed they were different. Therefore, rather than being attractive and hopeful, the ministry of Jesus was repulsive and infuriating to them. And the Pharisees were not sincerely curious here. Their question was laced with self-righteous criticism. Notice, they could not identify at all with the tax collectors and sinners, nor the kindness and compassion of Jesus. They just didn't relate. And that was their problem. Their self-righteousness blinded them to their own depravity and the identity of Jesus and his authority to heal, forgive, and transform them. I grew up a stereotypical good kid. I kept my nose clean. I didn't get into much trouble. My parents are sitting here. <laughs> I did well in school. I didn't party on the weekends. I had good friends. Went to church and youth group. Get this. My senior class at our banquet, I think it was at the senior class banquet, they gave me an award, called me up to get it. Senior class, up garden spot, as the one most likely to become a pastor. And I had major pharisaical tendencies. Self-righteousness, pride, judgmentalism. But as I grew in my understanding of the law and gospel, I began to be more aware of my sin and less shocked at the sins of others, less self-righteous and more empathetic because I could see those same sinful desires erupting inside of my own heart. I've never murdered anyone with my hands, but I have with my heart. So I identify with those on death row. I get it. I've never been drunk, but I have been very undisciplined and excessive in other areas. I've never rioted or looted, but I have slandered civil authorities, so I have something in common there. I've never slept around on Christina, but I've committed adultery countless times in my own heart. I belong with the tax collectors and sinners because deep beneath the stereotypical good kid, or now many years later pastor, is a sinner desperate for God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and healing and ongoing transformation. I am who Jesus came to save. Because I have this sin sickness that only Jesus can heal. Self-righteousness blinds to the reality of personal depravity and the identity of Jesus and his authority, his beautiful authority to heal and to forgive and to transform. How could we ever pray sincerely in our hearts, Father, forgive us our debts. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. And at at the same time, think to ourselves, if those people are disgusting, we all have more in common with the 
LGBTQIA plus community than we think. We all have more in common with death row inmates, corrupt civil leaders, Planned Parenthood executives, and the mentally deranged than we think. So brothers and sisters, let's be more careful in how we think of ourselves and how we think of others. We are tax collectors and sinners. The vilest of society, that's you and me. And unless you know that, unless that gets in here, you won't really know the compassion of Jesus for you. It just won't be that relevant. It just won't mean that much to you. Number four, Jesus is the physician of miserable sinners. Jesus knew the, the spiritual snobbery of the Pharisees, and he, he had a great response. He always had a great response. Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is the profound point. Who needs an oncologist? Someone sick with cancer. Who needs a cardiologist? Someone with heart disease. Who needs an orthopedic surgeon? Someone with a nasty broken leg. A physician is a great gift to someone who is sick and suffering, but a physician is irrelevant for someone who is healthy and feeling great, feeling on top of the world. So when your body feels great, and some of you that might be fewer days than, than more, but when your body feels great and you're full of energy and you're working hard you're buzzing around, you're checking off those things on the to-do list, you're exercising like you're 20, and you're not thinking at those in those moments of heading to the doctor. Not, not what's on your agenda. It's, it's when you feel like you've gotten run over by a, a truck that you drag yourself to the doctor. I've talked to people who were legitimately excited to get surgery because of the pain and suffering of their ailment. And that just isn't the case with healthy people. That urgency isn't there. Sick people feel miserable. We've all been there. And so they are very aware of their pain, very aware of their suffering, very aware of their need. Well, people feel great. So they don't really have a need. Jesus was speaking here in metaphor to make a point about the soul. Who needs a savior? Sinners sick with sin. Righteous people don't need a savior. Inherently righteous people don't have a sin problem. What would a savior save them from? Jesus didn't need a savior to come and rescue him. The tax collectors and sinners were sick with sin and needed healing of the soul. They needed a physician. They needed the savior to come to them, to heal them, to transform them, to give them a new life. But though the Pharisees were indeed sick with sin, just like the others. They didn't recognize their soul sickness. They didn't recognize their desperate need of a soul physician. They assumed they were well, righteous, good, above reproach, and therefore they assumed they had no need for Jesus to heal them from anything. John Calvin gave some apt words. He said, hypocrites being satisfied and intoxicated with a foolish confidence in their own righteousness, do not consider the purpose for which Christ was sent into the world, and do not acknowledge the depths of e evils in which the human race is plunged, or the dreadful 
wrath and curse of God which lies on all, or the accumulated load of vices which weighs them down, the consequence is that they are too stupid to feel the miseries of men or to think of a remedy. While they flatter themselves, they cannot endure to be placed in their own rank and think that injustice is done them when they are classed with transgressors. End of quote. Jesus responded with an accusation of his own against the Pharisees and implied in his metaphor that he is the physician of the soul. Now, you may wonder for a moment, for those of you new to Jerusalem Church, you might not know this as much, but those of you who have been around for a while, you might know and realize that we talk a lot about the law and gospel. The, the law and sin and guilt here at Jerusalem Church. It, and that's not to be mean. That's not to be condemning or pessimistic. One reason is that the natural inclination of the human heart is to self-justify, to excuse sin, to underestimate the extent and seriousness of sin, and to not really think about it, to go on with our lives. Another reason is that we believe that Jesus Christ is the great physician who heals the soul and gives new life to the soul and gives vigor to the soul to live for God. And so in order to see and to experience Jesus in all his soul physician's compassion and care and power, one must recognize the extent and seriousness of their sin sickness. Then... And only then will Jesus be wonderfully relevant and attractive, for he is the effective and ongoing treatment and cure for their ongoing soul sickness. We, we want people to know how great their sin and misery truly are so that they can also know the greatness of their deliverance in Christ how great Christ is to deliver them and how good and invigorating living for Christ in gratitude and joy and admiration and service and worship really is. Five, sinners who trust in Jesus know their sin and misery, know that Jesus is their friend and physician come to heal and transform them and are grateful to live a new life of steadfast love and obedience. The Pharisees thought that they knew scripture so well, but they didn't. They, they actually missed the entire point, which is a big deal. When you miss the entire point, or should I say person of scripture, as the true teacher and expert of the law, Jesus exhorted them, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Craig Blomberg, the scholar, he said, Jesus is dealing the Pharisees a double rebuke by treating them first as learners rather than teachers, and second as beginners who have yet to learn scripture correctly. End of quote. Jesus was quoting from Hosea 6, a uh, uh, a passage the Pharisees obviously did not understand. Hosea 6 talks about repentance, 
the healing of the Lord, knowing the Lord, the refreshing presence of the Lord. And in Hosea 6, 6, the Lord said, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In Hosea 6, God prioritized the spirit of the law above the ceremony of the law. The ceremonies or the religious rituals of the law, or we could say obedience to the law, is absolutely important. Not to be trivialized. It is important. But more important is heartfelt love and knowledge of God and love of neighbor. The entire law can be summarized by love God and love your neighbor. Love is the essence of the law. So though both steadfast love and outward obedience are necessary, love must take priority over outward conformity. The Pharisees needed to learn that God desires true love of him and for his love to overflow from the heart in true compassion and sympathy and kindness and affection and love for others. And as important as sacrifice and obedience to the law is, a kind disposition, tenderness, forgiveness, forbearance and love towards others, well, that's of utmost importance. The Pharisees judged and alienated because they considered themselves righteous under the law and they failed to identify with sinners as transgressors of the law. And in doing so, they missed the identity and compassion of Jesus. And then they treated people quite poorly. D.A. Carson said, by implication, those who do not see themselves in the light of Jesus's mission not only fail to grasp the purpose of his coming, but exclude themselves from the kingdom's blessings. That is a terrifying thought. Excluding yourself from the kingdom blessings of the king because you fail to grasp who he is and what his mission is to save and rescue sinners. In failing to grasp the identity and ministry of Jesus, the Pharisees excluded themselves from kingdom blessings. How sad, how tragic. The, the tax collectors and sinners, there they were reclining at the table with Jesus, sharing a meal with Jesus and listening to his hope and his teaching. They were getting a taste of kingdom blessings as the king himself was actively blessing them. How much the Pharisees missed. And Jesus was absolutely clear about his mission. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Self-righteous people ignore the gospel because they don't see the relevance for their lives. Jesus wasn't denying human depravity here uh, or, or advocating the actual existence of righteous people as if there were tons of righteous people around. He wasn't doing that. There are no righteous people except Jesus the righteous. His point was that some people consider themselves righteous, consider themselves good and decent people who, who really don't need much grace. And for those people, the gospel is irrelevant. But for sinners, for miserable sinners, for guilty, oppressed, burdened, and troubled sinners, the reality of Jesus coming to them, accepting them as they are, healing them, transforming them, and giving them a new life, 
in fact, extending to them true physician, uh, true friendship and a physician's tender care. Well, that for those people is the greatest comfort that they know. That is their hope. That is their joy. That, that is what they are forever thankful for. Saints, Jesus is the friend and physician of miserable sinners. He comes to them to accept them, heal them, transform them, and give them a new life. That's good news for sinners. The self-righteous yawn and ignore and dismiss. Now for the message this morning to be good news for you, for you to find true and lasting comfort in what I'm preaching here, there are three basic things that you need to know. Simple, basic things. Got to know these things. And if you know these three basic things, you will live with joy in the comfort of this gospel that I'm preaching. In fact, when it comes to your last breaths, you will die in the joy of this comfort of the gospel that I'm preaching. Here's what you need to know. First, how great your sins and misery are. You must consider yourself among the ranks of the tax collectors and sinners. You will not find comfort for your soul until you put yourself there with them, until you know who you truly are. Until you experience Jesus as your friend and physician, the lover and healer of your soul. You must experience his accepting and his transforming love. You must receive the, the healing you need from Christ alone. So second, you need to know how you are delivered from all your sins and misery. If he is not the lover of your soul, if you don't know, how, how can you have comfort? It is in knowing how great your sin and misery are, but how great his physicians care, how great his love, how great his compassion to rescue you. And when that is in here, true comfort can come for your soul. You will be comforted in, in, in the healing power of Christ. Third, there's something else. This is the last one. Third, you must know how you are to be thankful to God for such deliverance. You will not find comfort for your soul unless you are thankful for divine compassion and grace. Oh, so thankful to receive what you do not deserve. You will not find comfort till you know that. You, you show true thankfulness. You show your joy and gratitude in receiving from God by mercy or steadfast love and sacrifice in your life. We could say obedience infused and motivated by love. J.C. Ryle said this, let us make sure that we thoroughly understand the doctrine that these words contain. The first thing needful in order to have an interest in Christ is to feel deeply our own corruption and to be willing to come to him for deliverance. We are not to keep away from Christ, as many ignorantly do, because we feel bad and wicked and unworthy. We are to remember that sinners are those he came into the world to save, and that if we feel ourselves such, it is well. 
Happy is he who really comprehends that one principal qualification for coming to Christ is a deep sense of sin. End of quote. Now, I grant it to you, it is uncomfortable to hear about our sin. That's why many people go to churches who don't talk about it, at least not much. It's much more comfortable. Let's just not talk about it. Let's talk about sunshine. But one study Bible insightfully notes, quote, the gospel call has nothing for people who do not see and feel their sins. The gospel call has nothing. It doesn't offer you a thing. It has nothing for you. It would be irrelevant and disinteresting and boring and blah. And the world is so much more for people who do not see and feel their sins. But if you see and you feel your sins, the gospel is, it, it just comes alive. It's relevant. You need it. You want it. You want to hear about it. Why do we preach the law and gospel at Jerusalem church? Why do Christians need, Christians now, need to hear the law and, and be ever reminded of their sins? Well, Heidelberg 115 is spot on. Here's why. Here's the answer. First, that throughout our life, we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, that we may be zealous for good deeds and constantly pray to God for the grace of his Holy Spirit, that he may more and more renew us after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. That is really good. Perfection is ours, just not yet. We're being molded into the image of Christ and one day, that process will be gloriously, will reach its, its fullness. Self-righteous people don't want that. But God's dear children do. The, the law serves to show us, brothers and sisters, our sin and misery. And then the gospel gives us Christ. And then the law shows us the path of life, the goal, what we're trying to do. And so take heart, dear one. Jesus is the friend and physician.